Welcome to this KPMG Impact Podcast, providing fresh insights and perspectives on ESG and how you can deliver long-term value to all your stakeholders. Hello, and thank you for joining our KPMG Impact Podcast. I am Brianne Anderson, a Managing Director with KPMG's Department of Professional Practice. Today, I'm here with Maura Hodge, the KPMG Impact Leader for Audit, to chat about the question that keeps popping up, what is ESG Assurance? ESG is top of mind for many of us, and we find ourselves having similar conversations with many of our clients. Our purpose here today is to introduce what is ESG Assurance and the value that reporting on your metrics brings to all your stakeholders. To note, at the date of this recording, the SEC has proposed rule which includes ESG Assurance. For today, we will introduce ESG Assurance outside the context of this proposed rule. First, let's simply start with what is Assurance? It's a service which helps enhance the degree of confidence in information. Now in mine and Mora's world as CPAs, we provide independent assurance in accordance with professional standards. And there are different levels of assurance we can provide, and more is going to help us expand on that topic a little later. The most well-known information that is assured are financial numbers. And you can see that in the market in the form of audit and review reports on financial statements. What is gaining more attention these days is assurance over non-financial information. And this is where ESG fits in. So let's focus on the why. Why is there increased intention on ESG assurance? And it all comes down to stakeholders making decisions. Stakeholders want high quality, reliable information to make decisions. So assurance provides a higher degree of confidence in that information for those stakeholders to make a decision. Now, who is the who in this? We are talking about investors, boards, management, customers, supply chain, employees, the list goes on. What decisions are they making? Understanding the who and what decisions they're making will help you decide on what information to disclose and what to obtain assurance over. In this emerging area of disclosure, there are concerns about the quality of information being released to the market. Incomplete disclosures raise questions about whether adequate attention has been paid to material topics. Further, climate-related financial risks are being identified without supporting metrics, which may leave investors wondering if management has the data they need to manage their risks. Assurance helps address such problems. A value of assurance lies in the process. The process challenges business leaders to ensure their disclosures fully reflect the underlying governance, strategies, risks, and opportunities of the reporting entity. And with each assurance cycle presents opportunities to improve management systems, such as implementing robust controls and obtaining verifiable data. With that as our backdrop, let's dive into different types of assurance. Now, Mora, we have been hearing a lot about limited versus reasonable assurance. What are the different levels and what is the difference? Thanks for that setup, Bree. So if I jump right in and start talking about the difference between limited and reasonable assurance, I like to usually put it in the context of financial information. 
with my background as a financial statement auditor and knowing that many of these listeners are coming to this from a financial statement background, I think it'll help to put it in that context. Limited assurance is similar to what we do over quarterly financial information. The goal of which is to issue a conclusion that states nothing has come to our attention that the information is materially misstated. In order to come to this conclusion, the auditor performs procedures like inquiries and analytical procedures. We're looking for fluctuations in data and in information that would indicate that something is amiss or awry and could ultimately result in a material misstatement. Conversely, reasonable assurance is more like a year-end financial statement audit, the purpose of which is to form an opinion that the information is not materially misstated. In order to do that, we often perform controls testing to the extent that controls are performed and able to be tested, and then substantive testing, which is more detailed testing. We're actually picking sample selections, vouching numbers back to invoices. Now, I know I mentioned controls, but what I wanted to note is that control testing is actually not mandatory in order to reach our opinion. However, the benefit of testing controls is that it can often reduce the amount of substantive testing that we need to perform. So for example, if in an instance where a substantive statistical sampling plan would require us to test 100 invoices, we could potentially instead test 20 invoices and the controls around them and that could reduce our sample size by 50% or more. I highlight this because it's a little bit different than the expectation of SOX controls, which would be required over financial information, but is not currently required over ESG information. Another important thing to note is that while I talked about the difference between limited and reasonable assurance in the context of how we address financial information, we are coming at limited assurance or that quarterly review with a knowledge of a company's process, controls, methodologies, and policies. And we're making sure that those are being applied consistently at the quarter as well as for the full year. That's why for financial reviews, we can only perform inquiries and analytical procedures. When we come to ESG for the first time and perform assurance for the first time, it's critical that we obtain an understanding of your process, your methodologies, and your policies. So there is maybe some incremental work that has to be done and ways that the company can support the assurance process that is a little bit different than what you would normally see in a quarterly financial review. Lastly, I just want to mention that the vast majority of the market currently only obtains limited assurance over ESG or sustainability information. This has satisfied investors in the past, and it is the most common level of assurance that we see. With that said, I do anticipate this changing in the near future. As we're moving towards development of more investor-grade data, the expectation and the bar needs to rise in order to get to reasonable assurance. Yeah, that's insightful, Maura. I think that's a good foundation when we speak with our clients and those buzzwords we're hearing with limited and versus reasonable assurance. I do want to move on and have you chat with us about suitable criteria and metrics by first acknowledging that this is hard and it can be difficult to even start and then more confusion with the literal hundreds of frameworks and guidance out there to be assured against. 
And then to pile on top of that, we have clients developing their own criteria. So can you share with us what we should be considering when it comes to suitable criteria and metrics? Well, Brie, I think maybe you've sufficiently scared our listeners in terms of what suitable criteria metrics are. It's effectively the way that the number comes together. So if you think of US GAAP or IFRS, we have hundreds of pages in terms of what revenue is and how it's supposed to be calculated and how it has to be presented. Similarly, we have that for our assets and our liabilities on the balance sheet. And with ESG, we also need the same types of definitions or suitable criteria. This allows for objective, useful, and high quality information to be produced consistently every time it's being applied. When we work with companies, we can help determining whether the criteria or the metrics and the subject matter looked at is appropriate. Let me give you an example. With greenhouse gas emissions, generally, the greenhouse gas protocol is referenced as the suitable criteria. It provides guidance on how to set your boundaries of what information comes in. It defines what a greenhouse gas is within scope one, two, and three boundaries. And it also has disclosure requirements, like you must disclose the emissions factors you're applying or the methodologies that you're using. All of these definitions are critical and key for a user of the information to make high quality decisions. Another simple example I always like to give is gender diversity. It seems like it's straightforward, but when you take a large multinational corporation that operates in the United States as well as around the world, and maybe has 500 entities that are consolidated and rolled up into it, there are a lot of questions. First, is it just the US or is it the full world? Or is it just a couple of countries around the world? Does it include your full-time employees and your part-time employees, but not your contractors? And how do you deal with people and information where it's not available? What if somebody has chosen not to self-identify? All of this information is important to be defined, documented, and also disclosed externally. Another thing that I want to mention is that as auditors and assurance providers, we are not assessing whether or not the definition is green or sustainable or the right thing to do. We have to assess whether or not the criteria is objective and relevant and complete. But outside of that, we're really just looking to make sure that the number that you've calculated and the disclosures that you've provided have been performed and presented in accordance with the criteria that you've established. Lastly, I just want to note that suitable criteria is the same for limited and reasonable assurance. The same rules apply for both levels. If the criteria or the subject matter are found not to be appropriate for the level of reasonable assurance, it's also not appropriate for limited assurance. Yeah, and I've seen with clients the confusion coming from the different levels of assurance and if that had any impact on the criteria to which you are saying no. So hopefully that clears some of that up for our audience members. And now I touched upon this a little bit before, what information and metrics should companies make available and then assured? Well, Brie, I'm unfortunately going to give you the annoying auditor response, which is it depends. This decision has to be made by the company and is really dependent on the user of the information. Said differently, the question I would ask myself is what stakeholders are you making this information available to? 
How much do they understand the information that you're making available? And what are you trying to accomplish or achieve with issuing your assurance report? By making it available to everyone, like by putting it on your website or having it externally available, there's a risk of misinterpretation and disinformation, which ultimately might lead to greenwashing. So what does that mean and, and how do we put it in the context of, of our decision making? Well, in certain instances, maybe an investor is asking you just to disclose your scope one and two greenhouse gas emissions. You get to include this in your CDP reporting, you get extra points for doing that, or it is just an expectation that your scope one and two greenhouse gas emissions are assured. There's limited risk of misinterpretation in this instance because the readers and the users of this information are assumed to have knowledge and understanding of what a greenhouse gas inventory is and what information they should be looking for with respect to that inventory. But when we apply assurance to a full sustainability report, let's say, a report that could be anywhere from 100 to 300 pages long, there is some confusion often in terms of what is actually being assured. And so it's absolutely critical that the assurance statement that's being issued and management's discussion around that is very clear. If it's only certain components of the report, like your greenhouse gas emissions, or maybe one or two other metrics, that needs to be called out explicitly and identified throughout the report. There are a lot of other details that I could get into right now around this, but my greatest recommendation for you is really just to work with your assurance provider to ensure that the language both in their assurance report as well as in your reporting has been appropriately vetted and disclosure is sufficient so that the risk of misinterpretation is low. Yes, and bringing it up again, the process of going through assurance may answer a lot of questions our clients have. So with that, on behalf of Mora and myself, I want to thank our listeners for joining. Be sure to stay tuned for more podcasts on ESG. And as always, reach out to us to learn more about how KPMG can help you on your ESG journey. Thank you for listening to this KPMG Impact Podcast. For more information on ESG and other reporting resources, please visit audit.kpmg.us slash esg.html. We thank you for joining today.